Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 80, what, 86 of the podcast, so we're uh, not a... Uh, not a very new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you just listening uh, for the first time, just tuning in for the first time, uh, basically uh, what this podcast is, is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published, something, or recently published, something we think uh, you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about, and then uh, at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go ahead and uh, purchase the book and give it a read for yourself. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you, uh, you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest uh, today is Dr. Glenda Sluga, and uh, Dr. Sluga is professor, excuse me, professor of International History and Capitalism at the European University Institute, as well as Professor of International History and ARC Kathleen Fitzpatrick Laureate Fellow at the University of Sydney. Uh, she is also a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Uh, she is the co-editor of Internationalism, Internationalism,isms, excuse me, a 20th century history and women, diplomacy and international politics since 1500. She is the author of Internationalism, Internationalism in the Age of Nationalism, uh, The Nation, Psychology and International Politics, 1870 to 1919. Uh, the Problem of Trieste and the Italo-Yugoslav Border, Difference, Identity, and Sovereignty in 20th Century Europe, and the co-author of Gendering European History. And lastly, she is the author of The Invention of International Order, Remaking Europe After Napoleon, which was published back in December by Princeton University Press, and is the book we'll be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Sluga, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for showing interest in the book. It's terrific. Oh, no problem, no problem. Uh, so, uh, first things first, what, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the, what was the genesis about it? Uh, genesis of it, excuse me. Yeah, sure. Well, I think there are two stories. One is I was really interested in this period at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century, because it didn't matter which discipline I looked at, whether it was English literature, actually, or, uh, history or political science, there are, were, and are still major assumptions about uh, significant changes that take place in the creation of the modern world in this period. And I really wanted to test them out. And they were partly about the shift from a cosmopolitan ancien regime to a modern nation-based world. Uh, or they were about the invention of new kinds of diplomacy. So there was that aspect. So as an historian, I was really taken by this period and and, and I also found a lot of women uh, in the kind of involved in the politics of the period. So I wanted to find out what that was about. And secondly, it was someone, you know, living in the present and thinking about all of the conversations that take place around the end of the international order as we know it. And I think, you know, that's probably a familiar sort of phrase uh, for those of us interested in what's going on in the world. And I really... Uh, uh, became fascinated by the short historical view of that, that somehow there was an international order created at the end of the Second World War. Uh, of course, the uh, United States of America is prominent in that story. And it's the world that America made that is at stake right now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, by going back 200 years, I discovered, in fact, a much more foundational and fundamental 
uh, ideas about the pol- what I call the politics between states, mm-hmm. because historically the idea of um, international uh, an international order is m- uh, is more sort of, uh, modern. The word order is very modern. International comes into play uh, in the Enlightenment in the late uh, 18th century, so more than 200 years ago. Uh, the, the idea of in international politics, international law, but it really only becomes a popular phrase around the, the middle of the 19th century. So in the period I was looking at, people didn't use the word much, uh, mm. but they did engage in this politics between states. So we've got empires making up most of Europe, and we've got lots of little polities, uh, very few uh, you know, recognisable nation states uh, that we would that now comprise Europe. So it's a very different world, but there is this engagement in this period at the end of the Napoleonic Wars with the broad population of a rising middle class in particular, with the kinds of politics that takes place between states, not just inside them, whether they're mm-hmm. empires or republics. Um, and of course, the United States of America is part of that story. Yeah, so uh, make sure I'm, I'm right on this. The contention is the book is, of the book is we need, to, we need to return to the early 19th century uh, as the origin of the conception of the international order uh, that shaped our modern international politics. Yeah, and the most important things about modern mm. international politics, and that is the you know the emphasis in that period on the importance of diplomacy, of uh, settling conflict through discussion and negotiation and developing forms for doing that. And I say that happened at a cost because when that when these new uh, forms, institutions, practices of diplomacy were introduced, and we can talk about what they are. Mm. Um, it it, became, it professionalized that realm and, and made it much more the realm of men. And so women had been involved in diplomacy earlier, and they would be later in informal ways, but they did, they were increasingly kind of uh, made uh, illegitimate actors in that space as a modern conception of diplomacy took hold. So if we just look at the idea of diplomacy itself, then that idea that you know, it's really important to have relationships between countries where they can discuss uh, conflict and problems and avoid war. So the agenda was, you know, how do we avoid war? Europe had been in war for you know, a quarter of a century, uh, the French Revolution and afterwards. And um, so this the end of the Napoleonic Wars was a time where people took stock and said, well, actually, can't we introduce ways of you know, trying to avoid this in the future? Now, that all occurred in the context of very specific, you know, uh, polit- you know as I said, you know, the existence of empires and mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of, um, you know, disgruntlement <laughs> and the people that were excluded from these discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, but the principle was there, and I think that's the principle that we've forgotten, you know, um, you know, the importance of peace and how do you get there and the importance of talking. Sometimes people say, uh, you know, the UN, oh, it's just talking. But actually, that's what most of our political institutions are. They're, t- they're about talking uh, so that, um, in fact, uh, you know, humans can resolve their differences or, you know, actually uh, invest in large political ambitions as well. So that was all being discussed in the context, not just of, you know, p- politics within states, but politics between states. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, so... Um Go ahead and set the the context for us real quick. So we uh, we had the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and Napoleon and 
the Napoleonic, uh, Napoleonic France is finally defeated by this coalition, uh, the sixth coalition of, uh, <laughs> sixth coalition is basically pretty much everybody in Europe uh, <laughs> against Napoleon. So More Britain, or less. Uh, Britain, uh, Britain, the Russian Empire, uh, Habsburg, Austria, uh, Prussia, Sweden, um, you know, various other little uh, principalities and whatnot. And so, um, and then we get to these peace conferences that include um, the Congress of Vienna, the famous Congress of Vienna. So, um, so what was the Congress of Vienna, and uh, and what was its importance, and the importance of these other peace conferences, summits, gatherings, whatever you want to call them, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars? What did they accomplish? Right, so there had been peace conferences before as a practice of ending war, but this time at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which were fought on the basis of the extent to which France had, you know, occupied Europe, but also imposed, you know, economic an economic blockade really that, um, you know, Britain that kept Britain out of European of European um, trade and uh, also stifled, you know, the ambitions of various states. So, you know, the whole question of what Napoleon in France stood for was at stake in all this, you know, where, where liberty could be found. And the coalition powers decided that they would represent liberty instead, but also that they would, uh, by coming together, try to create uh, the basis for this more peaceful Europe in the future, because that was important to prosperity. Everybody was sick of war. Nobody wanted any more war. And, you know, how could they really create a new kind of um, uh you know, world order, because they saw Europe as the centre of the world, of course. So the peacemaking um, was, you know, crucial in this respect, and uh, the forms of diplomacy around it were really important. And we've come to take for granted, I think, the peace conference at the end of conflict, but then they were really thinking about how to do this in the way that removed all sorts of um, bases for, you know, uh, disagreement. So... Before uh, the Congress of Vienna, which stands for all the peace conferences, and we could list them, but in a way, the Congress of Vienna, which most people, if they know anything about this period or were taught anything in school, it would be around this, the Congress of Vienna, which took, you know, nearly a year uh, to resolve the issues. It took place from September 1814 until you know, June 1815. Uh, and there were lots of things that happened in in between all this. And um, most of Europe and Britain turned up, you know, the, the elite turned up, and lots of people that wanted uh, different kinds of issues resolved in the context of peacemaking came there to agitate as well, or to, to petition is a better word. And it's really interesting that, uh, you know, the people thought that these conferences should be spaces where you not only resolved you know, territorial questions between the victors and the defeated or, um, you know, who owed what to whom, reparations, mm. but actually also larger issues that were thought to be important in, an, in um, the kind of transformation of European politics. So this opening up of the space of politics between states included issues like anti-slavery, abol- the abolition of the slave trade and also the rights of Jews. Uh, in the liberated areas of Europe because, in fact, under Napoleon, Jews had been given more rights and uh, the question was, should those rights be maintained? So you see, suddenly, in unlike ever before, 
you not only have a new emphasis on the mechanics of diplomacy, mm-hmm. uh, trying to make sure that there were uh, practices introduced such as, you know, somebody should keep minutes so everybody had a record of what was discussed, so that was a, there was a basis for them going forward in discussions, uh, that everybody should be equal in the signing of documents, so there were no hierarchies between these different empires and, and smaller states. Um, and so try to create a more equitable basis for diplomacy, but also uh, to, you know, um, take into account uh, this broader idea of what kinds of politics should be agreed uh, or discussed in this space. So we now take for granted, you know, that humanitarian questions are part of the agenda of international politics, but that was really new, you know, or the question Mm. of rights, right? That was really new. So that all these states should agree on universal principles for these larger questions. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about, well, I want to, I want to get to the, to the ladies, the women, but, uh, first, <laughs> but first, uh, let's talk about the dudes, the, uh, the, um, the major players, uh, at this conference or the major powers, um, talk a little bit about, uh, their personalities. So, um, we have, a. Uh, Clemens von Metternich, who is the, I believe, the foreign minister for the uh, uh, for Habsburg Austria, uh, Viscount Castlereagh, Robert Stewart, who is the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs for Britain, uh, Tsar Alexander I of Russia, uh, and his foreign minister, uh, Count Karl von Nesselrode, Karl uh, August von Hardenberg, who's the Prime Minister of Prussia. And surprisingly, uh, France is given a <laughs> defeated. France is given a place at the table, uh, and that's going to be uh, uh, occupied by uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the uh, uh, wily uh, Charles Maurice uh, de Talleyrand. Uh, uh, but these are the uh, these are the guys who are going to. These are the states and the men who are going to make uh, the biggest. Uh, decisions for what Europe is going to look like going forward. Yeah, and I found it so fascinating that a lot of what we learn about these guys is a bit misleading, actually. Mm. So we know, you know, Metternich usually, to the extent that people that are, you know, aficionados of this, you know, 19th century history, usually they'd say, and, uh, you know, rightly to some extent, that Metternich was a conservative and that, you know, he was all about making sure the revolution... um, you know, the French Revolution principles weren't, you know, instituted in this new Europe. But actually, he's much more interesting because he went he went to university at a university where um, the his teachers were stu- had been students of the Enlightenment thinker Immanuel Kant. And Kant, you know, thought about the importance of the relationships between states. Um, and this was a, an idea, an idea of what we might now call international society, that uh, you know. Metternich really had at heart. He was he hated the idea of war. He hated violence. He was a you know to some degree a pacifist. So he tried everything to make sure there wouldn't be a war. He tried mm. not. He tried to keep Austria out of the the war against Napoleon because he just didn't like you know the um, the consequences of war. Um, and but he also believed that the Ottoman Empire should be part of the discussions taking place amongst the Europeans because he thought that every state had a right to, uh, you know, legitimation uh, because if you started to undermine the rights of the Ottoman Empire, then you yourself would find your empire undermined. So he believed in the importance of recognising the existence of these different empires, even if the Europeans thought 
they shouldn't, you know, other Europeans weren't that interested in, you know, the, the status of the Ottomans were ready to exploit the Ottoman Empire. Mm. The one thing he, the one uh, point he shared with Castlereagh, the British Prime Minister, was his mistrust of, of the Tsar of Russia. But actually the Tsar of Russia is also interesting because he stood for, in popular opinion, liberty. It was the Tsar <laughs> who led the, um, who, who started the coalition, and it was the Tsar who then kept standing up for the idea of a united Europe and for the, its liberal principles. And that was under the influence of various people, and we'll talk about that later. But, you know, so what's interesting is Putin, in fact, in his various uh, political phases, has um, identified with this Tsar Alexander I in the past when he's tried to cozy up to the European Union. He's often, you know, in the past, he would invoke mm. the Tsar Alexander I and this episode where the Tsar was crucial, a crucial figure in the remaking of Europe after Napoleon in a liberal uh, uh, version of Europe. Uh, and liberal, of course, I mean, I know the American listeners... Small have L liberal. Yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, small L liberal, that's yeah. right. So, um, you know, so, so finding out all this, when you went back to the sources and had a look more closely and trying to get underneath the stereotypes was fascinating. And of course, Castlereagh, who was infamous in England for his role in Ireland and suppressing um, uh, the Irish, actually stood for, in this European context, uh, you know, Britain's involvement in a, in a shared, in a kind of European um, political space. He was, you know, very much uh, interested in the kind of power it would give Britain in the, in the area, but also in the idea. And his successor, in fact, was uh, was not invested at all. And you can tell then the importance of this particular generation to the ideas and principles of international cooperation that are being established. And I'm not the first to talk about that. There are mm. other historians like Paul Schroeder who's, you know, really emphasise the importance of this generation. But, you know, the, the ideas did live on after, and they weren't just these men, and that's the really important thing, that it wasn't just these men. Yeah, uh, so... Um <laughs> For this, uh, what are uh, let's get to the women. What are let's get to the women. Yeah. <laughs> what are ambassadrices and salonnières, uh, and okay. and what are their importance to diplomacy? And then I want to specifically, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, after that, um, uh, Madame de Stal, uh, Germaine de Stal, who is uh, almost. Um, I guess you could say she's probably the the central character of the story, of uh, you know of this book. Um, so yeah. So what, uh, like I said, ambassadrices and salonnières. What are their importance in in diplomacy at this? What what are those two things, and what are their importance in diplomacy? Right. So so the interesting thing about this period at the end of the Napoleonic Wars is a period of transformation. So we've really got the meeting of two different worlds: the world that's coming, the future, mm. and the world of the past. So, so the modern kind of nation-based future uh, and international order future and the past, which is an ancien regime um, world, you know, a more feudal world, uh, but also a world that, you know, brought about the Enlightenment and, uh, you know, Kant, Immanuel Kant's part of that world and his idea of, you know, kind of this international, the cosmopolitan international society of states. So um, in that, representing that older world, ironically, are these women, they're often, you know, usually aristocratic or 
Madame de Stael was actually bourgeois, but she was very wealthy, and her father um, was Jacques Necker. He'd been the the treasurer, the minister of finance for you know Louis the Fourteenth, uh, Louis the Sixteenth. Sorry, getting my numbers. So Louis the Sixteenth, <laughs> and um, and so they're very much part of that royal world. Uh, and she herself had married into um, the uh, aristocracy by virtue of marrying a Swedish diplomat. Uh, a Baron uh, de Stal, Holstein de Stal, um, and so she, Germain de Stal was one of the very many uh, either aristocratic or you know elevated bourgeois women and noble women uh, who were uh, known at the time for their involvement in politics, either by virtue of being married to, uh, to ambassadors and being called ambassadrices. Now ambassadors are also in this older kind of model of diplomacy, usually aristocratic men who don't get paid, but they can afford to, or, or they try to find ways of sort of creating a living or, uh, through these um, modes of employment and influence. And um, the, their wives often, uh, or in some cases, are directly involved in politics by writing some of their reports, for example, or using their own networks to influence the international politics of diplomacy. And... Uh, they have a bit more freedom in this kind of pre-modern, pre-bourgeois world of the uh, 18th century. And they're still there in the 19th, but it's a moment of flux. Um, so the Congress of Vienna is famous also, or infamous, for being uh, not only long, because <laughs> it took, you know, <laughs> almost a year, but also because there were so many social events and sociability was seen as a major part of diplomacy. And that, of course, is still the case that the forms of sociability have changed. Um, so in this period, the salon, which was also uh, very much identified with the Enlightenment world, uh, uh, the salon being, you know, if you think about what's a salon, it's the lounge room. Uh, but So it's kind of space where you would invite visitors into your house and entertain them. So in that aristocratic world or ennobled world, the salon was the, um, the, the, the abstract and actual part of the house that where the woman could preside over political discussion or cultural discussion, um, artistic discussion. The point was they were involved in uh, creating a public sphere, in uh, exerting influence through the direction in which these discussions uh, would go. And de Stahl not only wrote about these salons and understood their significance, but she was regarded as sort of the premier salonier. She was also an ambassadrice and she used and utilised these roles, as well as publication. She was very well known for her novels and her writings. Uh, she used this influence, which was European-wide, uh, to actually influence um, the creation of the coalition against Napoleon and then, um, you know, the Tsar and his ideas about uh, what kind of Europe and how France should be treated in the, in the post-war period. So it's really fascinating. And I think what happened... Why we haven't known about them is because there's, uh, you know, as the kind of more modern world took hold, the women's role was seen as non-transparent. You know, they're not part of the kinds of politics that are, uh, or political institutions that are shaped. They're, those are very masculine as politics mm -hmm. takes fixed forms. And so they're seen as meddlers, which is probably right because they're not given any other mode of, you know, participating. But... Um, you know, they still do uh, participate in salons and, and diplomacy later as wives of diplomats and very much, of course, in the present. 
but uh, their roles became subservient to the men. So it changed. So diplomacy was a space, I think, that um, you could argue, and I do in the book, uh, modern forms of diplomacy were informed by the salon practices of the Enlightenment, Mm. the capacity to talk, to negotiate, that was all cultivated in the salon. Uh, But actually, as this is one of the paradoxes of this modern history, as new ideas about diplomacy take root, uh, in fact, it's regarded as a masculine space. And so you don't, even if you see women, you don't talk about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't report them in your, uh, in your, in your diplomatic notes um, or political notes. And you certainly, as historians, don't write about them because they're not legitimate actors in this political space. So that's yeah. what happened to women. They kind of got written out of the history. So the book really tries to find them and put them back in. And they're not always, you know, inf- they are meddlers sometimes, right? Because they don't have <laughs> formal roles. Um, and you just have to trust that they're meddling on the side of good and not evil. But they're not always meddling on the side of good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but so the more uh, professionalized and bureaucratized the uh, the culture of diplomacy and politics become, then the more their inter- women's intervention into, uh, into diplomacy, into questions of foreign policy, that's going to become come to be viewed, as you, as you said, as illegitimate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, so, uh, switching gears a little bit. Uh, so this is also the time when the idea of of quote unquote Europe uh, really comes into being. Uh, Europe as not just a continent, but Europe as uh, as an idea. Um, yeah. So can you discuss the um, uh, the 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 intersecting liberal and conservative outlines uh, for their ideas of of what Europe is. Yeah, so I the transformations taking place right are mm-hmm. about but partly concern uh, who's in and who's out of Europe, and also you know what constitutes Europe. So one of the one of the committees that's set up uh, in the context of the Congress of Vienna, which is only one of the many peacemaking congresses. But think think the end of the First World War where also there were many of these peace congresses that went on for a while, right? Um, so one of them concerns uh, not just territorial borders but the invention of um, a federal Germany, right? Mm-hmm. A, of an idea of Germany because there's, no, there's no Germany, there's Prussia, there's Austria. Yeah. There are all these little German polities. <laughs> so so the, uh, in the, you know, part of the thinking and whether you want to classify it as liberal or conservative is the issue um but if we keep those categories out for a minute then you've got these you know kind of uh, imperial powers and this is one of the you know other sort of interesting problematics at the heart of this new international order is that you've got an idea of you know the importance of talking politics between states but you've also got a few empires deciding for everybody else right so um and sometimes you know, one of the issues they want to decide is, in fact, uh, whether there should be this uh, federated Germany. Um, and the in, in, imperative is partly how do you combine lots of little states that exist that are part of the leftovers of the Holy Roman Empire to create a, a bulwark against France expanding again, you know, trying to expand again eastward into Europe, the rest of Europe. And so you create a Germany that can pull its, you know, um, defensive resources but also worked a little too well (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, right, <laughs> hindsight. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, I guess, interesting for your institute is that, you know, on the agenda for this new Europe and um, is also, you know, uh, are also uh, economic questions, financial ones. But uh, and, and at their crux is this idea that a Europe that is able to, you know, um, uh, create new kinds of um, uh, commerce will also prosper and be less likely to go into war. Mm. So one of the committees, so you've got a territorial committee that's about uh, creating a federal Germany. So we can see that as the origins of some kind of new liberal national order. But also the idea of free navigation uh, of rivers. And that seems, well, okay, so why is that a big deal? Because one of the arguments for why um, Europe's rivers should uh, be um, uh, the centre of discussion is that um, because of all their small little territories everywhere in Europe, there were a lot of taxes and customs imposed on anyone moving um, uh, produce, you know, along a river. Mm-hmm. And it was very uh, time-consuming and inefficient and costly. So if you removed the um, the customs barriers and you got all the little states together to agree on the terms of you know, how they would um, uh, cooperate uh, to get uh, trade moving through the river system, which was crucial to it, you know, transport, because you don't have airplanes, right, <laughs> or trucks <laughs> using the rivers uh, to get things moving along in Europe. That, um, that this this would not only make things more efficient, but encourage cooperation and peace between these, you know, river river um, um, state river, riverside. Uh, the 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 uh, there's a kind of French word for it, right? Or we'd call them riparian states, right? Because they live mm. along the rivers. And this beca- this had already existed. Napoleon had introduced this idea um, in, in the Rhine area, but there was a notion that it should be imposed more broadly. Uh, the guy behind that was the Prussian um, thinker and, at this point, ambassador to Austria, uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt. And um, so this was another kind of liberal principle that sort of lived on for through the 20th century. And some it's less discussed now, but there was for a long time the idea that, you know, um, economic cooperation would lead to peace because there'd be, you'd have less interest in fighting someone, another state, if you were reliant on... Uh, economic cooperation and of course that's the idea behind the European Union right that somehow by right. creating this this uh, economic union they'd be less likely to, to go you know to kill each other in another world war so um, I think that's a very liberal idea because it is part it's also kind of a free market idea and it's uh, embedded in the um, again in this idea of what what's the nature of political discussion between states what should be involved uh, part of international politics and uh, so these are sorts. This is this is again new as a as an issue. And there were other ones to do with um, you know taxation that would come up through the 19th century, etc. So you've got this the beginning of new kinds of uh, shared um, economic discussions as well as territorial ones. So I'd count that as a liberal one, even though it's conservative states you know mm. um, uh, in, involved. Um, or even conservative uh, statesmen involved in these issues. You know, anti-slavery again, uh, or anti-slave trade, because not anti-slavery, but anti-slave trade, um, putting that in there, you know, that would make it a, a kind of, you'd say, argue that was kind of a liberal international order, oh, sure. even though the people discussing it 
are conservative. So there are these really interesting ways. You can't just say this is liberal or conservative mm. because the people and the issues aren't quite fixed yet on an agenda that says, well, that's a liberal international law or is a conservative. They're just they're feeling around, you know, and, and thinking, what else should we discuss? You know, what else needs discussion or what else can we use this forum for, um, uh, given that we're all here? And they also established these ongoing um, ambassadorial conferences to deal with some of these issues after they've resolved the peace treaties, um, particularly the slave trade, uh, but also um, uh, any kinds of um, uh, conflict over uh, colonial territory, for example. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of historical work that we still haven't done understanding the extent of the economic discussions, actually, uh, in, in this space, too. Yeah, uh, sort of on that same topic on on economics, um, the role of bankers uh, is uh, sort of <laughs> a new one uh, in this period. How uh, bankers are going to influence, uh, well, first how they influence the war itself, and then how they're going mm-hmm. to influence the uh, the peace talk. So, uh, yeah. talk a little bit about how uh, bankers and finance are gonna, um, you know, it's not just the um, you know the men of state, the uh, the ambassadrices and the the Saloniers yeah. that are that are affecting things. It's also the bankers. So, uh, talk a little bit about that, for if you could. Okay, so, yeah. so I think you know again, you know, once we start looking for, once we go beyond the idea of you know what is politics and who mm-hmm. is politi- who acts in politics, and actually look to see who is doing it rather than assuming who does it, we see not only as you say you know the, the ambassadors and so on, yeah, but they see what's you know the, the really important figures in this period are the bankers. There are um, you know banking itself is changing the nature of what banks do and what bankers do is shifting in this period. Um, but they, really the big shift has come about because of the Napoleonic Wars and the need uh, of states for credit, right, and mm-hmm. for moving credit across borders in the middle of war, et cetera, getting payment to, you know, um, to armies that might be, you know, far away or to allies. And so uh, bankers, and particularly the Rothschild Bank, becomes a, a really important actor in providing the services that allow the war to continue. And then after the war, that allowed the peace to take shape, and uh, and they are, you know, emblematic. Uh, I think to a large extent, even though many of them are Jewish and some uh, some are Christian, but many are Jewish, that they are emblematic of this new bourgeois world where wealth mm-hmm. also gives you an entree into um, political life, and they use utilize that to get questions like um, the question of Jewish rights uh, on the political agenda. And it's often the families as well as the bankers themselves. Uh, and their networks are very uh, uh, entangled in the aristocratic world. They often become ennobled. Um, they might not have other kinds of rights as Jews still in the states to which they belong, but um, they do uh, they get rewarded in other ways and are able to use their influence in other ways. The Rothschilds, for example, were originally from Frankfurt, then they set up a huge... Um, the banking house in um, uh, in London and uh, have other they have a Paris branch, but they never they don't have one in um, Vienna until uh, uh, after the Napoleonic Wars because of the extent of anti-Semitism. But their roles in the war and then in the peace in enabling um, you know the provision of credit for 
um, the war and, and afterwards for state building, um, gives them a new entree into, uh, you know, markets that ha- and, and um, country, national context and pure context they hadn't mm. had roles in before. Um, so they, they shift the political agenda, they shift the financial scenarios. So uh, not the Rothschilds, but the Barings Bank becomes really important to the invention of a new kind of international finance that allows the French to pay the reparations that get imposed uh, in the post-war, and then that becomes a model, for, uh, that, that loan model, that credit, the sovereign debt model, um, transnational sovereign debt uh, model becomes uh, really important for um, states, uh, empires wanting to borrow more generally and, and raising credit across um, borders or in other markets rather than just locally. That all grows out of these peace congresses and then and the spread of diplomatic networks um, uh, and the relationships between um, diplomats and bankers and and also you know statesmen. So that's a fascinating story that's part of this and it changes the political scene and the economic scene um, and also I think uh, is a useful strand to keep picking up and thinking about through the 19th and 20th century. And the the important thing is that um, we go looking for the complicated ways in which they're involved. Um, there are these uh, a very good economic historians, Mark Fanfo is one of them, who actually tried to work out whether the bankers uh, in the 19th century were, because of the extent of their involvement in international politics, were in fact um, uh, working, you know, were influencing politics uh, in ways that encouraged peace or, or in fact invited war. And, um, you know, of course, the picture you come up with is very complicated, but sometimes mm-hmm. they promoted peace. They refused to fund uh, wars because, in fact, they, you know, could do better out of peace than war. Right. And at the times uh, they were invested in uh, war, but much more in peace, actually. So in the context of the Rothschilds, for example. So, you know, they're really important players in what we would call politics, the politics between states, international politics, in the 19th century, in complicated ways, and we see the origins of this very much in this, um, in the specific way in which, uh, in the early 19th century, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, they become involved in the expansion of the political agenda, as well as, uh, it, you know, it, ideologically, you know, rights for Jews, for example, or the, uh, the anti-abolition, uh, and um, also practically by providing new forms of finance and credit for remaking Europe in the post-war. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, um, already bumping up uh, to our uh, time limit, but um, just want to get a couple more questions in if uh, we can. Um, so uh, how did these um, these historic, historically specific ideas of the wartime coalition, these uh, their approaches, their experiences, how did these things come to influence uh, future generations when it comes to uh, diplomacy and, and foreign affairs? Yeah, so that's really interesting. So when you trace the history, you find out that the Congress of Vienna, as a, 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 an, a symbol of that whole period, um, gets taken up in very different ways. So in the immediate post-Congress uh, period, uh, also, you know, pacifist groups are really interested in promoting the idea um, of cooperation by, you know, using the symbol of the Congress of Vienna. 
But by um, the early 20th century, I found it fascinating that when Woodrow Wilson, you know, was trying to convince the um, American Congress that the, the United States should be involved in the First World War, he talked about the Congress of Vienna, but he said, you know, we will be involved so that we can make sure that at the end there's not a Congress of Vienna-style peace. He decided, he argued, and he was an historian, of course, but he represented the Congress of Vienna as the opposite of the kind of peace that the Americans uh, would, would you know, promote in a post-war uh, world. Uh, that instead, that the Congress of Vienna stood for secrecy and um, exclusivity. That it was all about uh, conservatism and restoration of an of an ancien regime, and and not about um, you know uh, the liberation of Europe. And he so he used it as the opposite. But actually, when you look really at the kinds of diplomatic uh, institutions that the uh, the U.S. France, Great Britain, all relied on in the post, uh, you know, 1919, in the post-First World War, in setting up the peace conference, that in fact, much of it is very similar. And some of the historians involved, because there were quite a few historians involved in the sort of expert teams that were brought to Paris in 1919, they actually wrote about uh, the Congress of Vienna as um, important to understand and as a model. So we have uh, committees that you know, expert committees uh, that are to do with uh, territorial questions, the use of statistics, that's all from mm. 1814. We have the um, this ex more expansive idea of what uh, should be on a peace agenda, uh, in not just the drawing of boundaries, but also rights questions. Um, so uh, we have the return to the idea of, you know, the free navigation and, and the importance of, of that principle for a, a liberal uh, international world order. So I think there were more similarities. There's the importance of sociability and diplomacy. Uh, it was a different world because in 1814, you know, there weren't the idea of the nation is very, uh, you know, underdeveloped. Most ambassadors or foreign ministers don't have to be from the country they represent. They often don't speak the language. Uh, Britain is an exemption, but uh, even in the British case, they sometimes, in, uh, you know, utilised um, diplomats from Hanover, for example, uh, on, you know, uh, across the channel. But uh, the Russians are, most of his advisors were from somewhere else. They weren't Russian or they didn't speak Russian. Even the Russians, even the Russians didn't speak Russian. They might speak French or German. So, um, you know, it's a different world. But there were really interesting borrowings. So we've got the, you know, there's the history of how the idea of the Congress of Vienna gets taken up and it's used, whether it's a symbol of the antithesis or the actual kind of international politics one wants to, um, uh, you know, engage. Or, um, you know, we could actually look at, you know, the institutions and how they evolve. And there are, you know, again, this is why I think the end of the Napoleonic Wars is so important. It seems to me that there are many ways in which you can see the foundations of the modern, uh, mm. the modern international world order in uh, what gets developed in 1814 and, sure. and, and in those years. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Uh, so last question, since we're already at like 43 minutes. Um, same question I ask pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast at the right. end. 
uh, and that's um, obviously what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's the what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? Oh wow! Well, you know that's to me that's a, I, I I think that's an easy question because <laughs> I, I really want people to feel that um, you know that the, the the politics between states is a really important. Uh, political space they should be interested in not just historically but in the present and that we should think that this is a space that we should invest in and we should think about the importance of the institutions in place in the international uh, you know political realm it doesn't matter what we call it the global public sphere international politics you know world politics mm. but that in fact the politics between states is as important, and that's something that people 200 years ago were starting to un- understand and acknowledge. You know that 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 this was the space in which states talk between each other was a space that should engage a broader public, that should be uh, take up broader issues, and that um, the objective of peace is something that we shouldn't forget as an important motivation. All right, great. Uh, well, before we go, is there? Uh Anything else uh, besides the book you want to plug? Any uh, any anything new coming along? Any appearances anywhere else? Uh, social media? Anything like that? Oh, okay, so you can follow um, me uh, on Twitter. I'm at inthist, uh, and also uh, I'm now involved in a project. I'm going back. I've gone back to the 20th century, and we have a big European Research Council project that I'm leading on international economic thinking. So really trying to explore um, in great greater depth, you know, just uh, how important international institutions in the 20th century have been to developing um, different ideas about what the economy is for, for how we imagine the economy and what it's for and, uh, and how that takes place on this kind of international level. So trying to, you know, get into, into the, you know, the history of globalization and really Kind of pull it apart and see, you know, what people, what ambitions people have invested mm. in, in, um, you know, thinking about the economy on a global scale. All right, great. Well, uh, look forward to that. Uh, All right, thank you, Tim. Thank no. you so much for reading the book. It's oh, yeah. so exciting when someone reads. Oh uh, no, no problem. I mean, I, I consider it the least I could do. Uh, for somebody, if I'm going to ask them to devote their time to talk about the book, is that I actually read it myself. I mean, I, I know there's lots of podcasts out there where, um, uh, you know, people don't <laughs> read it, and it's pretty obvious, and I uh, don't find those uh, conversations very enlightening. Uh, but I found this book uh, very enlightening, and I'm uh, very, very glad you wrote it, and I'm glad I, uh, I'm glad I found it out there. Uh, the book, again, is The Invention of International Order, Remaking Europe After Napoleon. Uh, highly, highly recommend it for everybody out there listening. Go out and uh, get yourself a copy. And again, the uh, the author and my guest today, uh, Dr. Glenda Sluga. So uh, again, Dr. Sluga, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast and uh, discussing the book with me. I appreciate it. So much my pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if uh, you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we also have our, uh, our uh, Twitter account for the uh, podcast. You can... Uh, reach out to us there, you know, um, give us a follow, send us a DM if you have any uh, 
questions or comments or anything like that, uh, our Twitter handle is, what is it, uh, at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So, uh, yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.